So, hello, Faith. Hi, Addie. How are you? I am great. I am recovered from COVID, so I have full jolty energy at the moment. Good. And you took that Paxlovid, right? Paxlovid, yes. Paxlovid, and that helped you, right? Well, I, I think so. And I like the, you know, some drugs have really crappy names, but Pax is peace, and then it has the Ovid from COVID. So it's a nice, it's a nice um, neologism, I think. Some drugs are impossible to pronounce. Paxlovid seems pretty cool. Yeah, it did seem to work for me. Yes. Yeah. I yes. think Lexapro sounds nice. Lovely. And like uh, Valium sounds lovely. And yeah, it's true. And Halcyon, Percocet. what are my favorites? Hal- Halcyon. What about Percocet? Exactly. Very That's pretty. Good. Yes. And what about ketamine? It's good. A little ketamine bounce. Yeah. Okay. It's all better than Kaopectate. Uh, for sure. Or Colace. Yes. Today we have Dr. Richard Fershine who is an expert in all things integrative medicine, longevity-based, nutritional-based, looking at the microbiome, looking at all the things that people can do to stay healthier using the best of Eastern and Western medicine. He runs he runs a, a, a integrative um, wellness center not far from you, Faith, on the Upper East Side. He's seen 25,000 patients. That's a lot of people. We'll have to ask him how his memory wow. is about each we one of them. We have to say, ask him how old he is. My God, that's a lot of patients. He looks pretty young. Maybe that's a testament yeah, does. to his, doesn't he? Yeah. And he's he's incredibly uh, empathetic and smart and at the leading edge of the frontiers of medicine. So I think it's going to be a great conversation because you and I are both obsessively interested in all things wellness related and longevity related and where is the future taking us we've had a lot of guests on this subject and i think richard is going to be um a great capper to those experiences that we've had have you ever gone to see him i have not gone to see him but i did get some free advice about uh covid related transmission and what did he say? Well, exactly? you know, when, when Flora tested, I wore a mask, being paranoid and Jewish. And then when I tested, I said, I'll just take off the mask. But then I said, well, wait a minute. We're each shedding and we each have a viral load. Why would we want to make the other one potentially worse? So I asked him if we should put the mask back on and he replied, good idea. Yeah. Uh, okay. I know. You're, you're like cynical about all that, right? Well, it's not that I'm cynical. It's that I'm sure it works for people. It's just a lot. And, you know, I had COVID so early in the game in March 2020. And, I, you know, I came out to the country and I was very fortunate because I could have everybody outdoors. Made them more comfortable. But the COVID you had in those early days, that COVID has gone from the earth, basically. So the new variants... We'll see you as fresh meat, fresh immune meat. That'll be interesting, but it won't be interesting, so I can't say that. I think Cece got it in Europe, my little one. I know, one. You, yeah, you told and, me. Yeah, yeah she, she came, came back. back. She, yeah. she, she, uh, but she got rid of it very fast. But every time you say shedding, I think you're a dog. 
<laughs> I hate to say. Well, I don't like to think of skin cells as one of my least favorite things. Well, the shedding is of. not skin cells. The shedding is oh, the good. virus in the in the in the in the nose. Well, it feels like there are cells involved. So, but you were telling me before before our guests we're fortunate enough to listen in on us, that you worry about stepping into the pothole. Yeah. So COVID is just one big immune pothole. So is so is anxiety. So is yes. all of it. Um, I, I, I do have a lot of things to ask them because I've been reading so much about, I don't know if it has a real name, but you know where they take a tight skin of your head and then they put on these things and I don't know what they do. They reconnect your broken synapses. Right. And then you're all healthy and happy again. I want to TNS. Know you... TNS. Yeah, but there's an there's a more forward one, I think, a newer one. Right, we can ask them. I think that that sounds good to me. I think using electrical impulses in this case to restore areas of the brain that have been damaged from a variety of factors. Trau- trauma. Is... Trauma, yes. Trauma. PTSD. Um, long COVID, um, anxiety, um, Parkinson's, all sorts of neurological yeah. issues. Yeah, it works. There's no doubt about it. It's going to get better and better and better because we'll learn with more precision what parts of the brain need to be zapped for what right. conditions. So should, just saying, shouldn't we do this, Patty? Yes. We have to make a date. We should go and do it. We should ask him who is the best at this. A zap date. Yeah, a zap date. Yep, we should definitely do this. Well, we had—I forgot his name because I need the shot. We had a guest on. Remember, you met him at at a faci- at his facility. Yeah, he, he does. does it. Yeah. yeah, he does it. He does it, and he um, restored a good friend of mine's husband out of a two-year stay-in-bed depression. Right, retract. Yes, intractable he's still, depression. He's still he's still um, an introvert, though. But he got out of bed. He did, and he went to work. Really, but he st- he still doesn't like parties. But but what was he before he he became bed bound? Was he an, was he an extrovert? No. No. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Like many people, I'm a cop out hybrid. I think it depends. I can be, you know, like you. I think. I think there are moments when I'm sort of sort of motivated to be outside myself and then motive then moments where I'll just not want to talk to anybody really. You're bivert. Yes, good. Or an omnivert. An omnivert. I think I'm an extrovert, I've decided. Um that gets tired sometimes and has to lie down. Well you could still feel full of a desire to connect in a prone position. I can, but nobody wants to come over. But do you think you feed off people, the energy of people? For sure. With and with extreme abandonment issues, too. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you reach out to people on email, let's say, and they should write back to you, but they don't, how quickly do you say, screw it, and you drop it, or how much do you obsess over what happened. Now, I never think, I don't, I have to say, you may have given me something new now, but I don't think of email that way. If they don't write, 
most of our emails are business related. So I think that maybe they're not ready for us. You know, I don't have any personal emails, hardly any. Really? That are not, no. Right. And we answer emails in eight minutes or less. Not very few people answer that fast. I mean, especially to clients, you know. That's a good tagline. The but, answers may not be good, but you get them at eight minutes or less. So less. <laughs> right. But now I I I assume that they're confused. I don't even think about it, but now that you're making me think about it, I think they're confused, busy, right. uh, you know, otherwise occupied. Mm. That has very little to do with me. If it's a business one, I think they don't want to, you know, engage that way right now. Right. Email is, I think, dead. I think email is a dead, what do you call it, communication system. protocol. Terrible. Nobody wants it. Nobody wants to read it, and nothing good comes out of it. And it's mainly designed for people covering their asses in corporate America. Well, a lot of it is that, but what about Slack? Yeah, I never got into Slack. Is that good? So a lot of my clients have are using Slack and they have me on the Slack channel. I don't particularly like Slack. I think everybody- How does it go? How's it going? Enter your- It's synchronous. Everybody. It's synchronous. It's a big, giant, yeah. endless thread. It's like, mm-hmm. the, it's like the Talmud. <laughs> and everybody, it's like Google Docs. I personally hate the Google Doc model. Why? Because everybody- Everybody's opinion is considered equal, and everybody feels obligated to contribute to the Google Doc because if oh, they I don't, see. it feels like they're not doing their work. So you get a thousand comments. Oh, it's terrible. I like it between two people, though. Sometimes oh, two people something. building, yes, but not when you have yeah. ten people on the Google Doc. Terrible. Well, you know, it's unusual for a physician to be in the waiting room, so maybe we should show them what it feels like. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding, Richard. That's very cute. So I have to um, say, we should have a comedy show. Okay. So you go, Annie. No, go. I was just going to say, let us let us now bring Richard in from the proverbial waiting room and let the uh, let the uh, fireworks begin. I'm going to let Adam ask the first questions because he found you, and that's only polite. Well, we we found each other actually, but um, hey, Richard, good to see you. Of Great course. to see you. Maybe you could just introduce yourself. We we gave you a little setup in our preamble, but I think it'd be great if you introduce yourself to our guests. I mean, you've got an amazing practice that you've built. You've, you've treated so many patients, 25,000, maybe 25,001 since uh, you updated your website. And uh, and how did, you, how did you take this path of integrative medicine and um, what brought you here? Yeah. I mean, I've always had a, um, this is a original memories. I, I wanted to be a doctor and um, my family history was riddled with health problems. So, you know, cancer, heart disease. I grew up with asthma as a child and uh, missed a lot of school, was always sick. And there really wasn't a lot of uh, treatments available at the time. So I have been on this journey to understand um, my own health and, and the health of the people I cared about. Um, I really had to deal with a lot of personal tragedy growing up. I had my two best friends uh, when I was 10 and 
14 died from lymphoma and leukemia. God. And it was a strange time. My mother had breast cancer. My father had heart disease. Um, a lot of cancer in the family, melanomas and, and so forth. So I was really surrounded by medicine, whether I wanted to be or not. And I needed to get answers. And at the time, you know, growing up, there really wasn't a lot. Um, there was a lot of fear around cancer. There was a lot of unknowns around heart disease, but they were really had a good understanding of what it was and what the option. And I remember growing up, you know, around, uh, you know, radio broadcasts from Carlton Fredericks. Uh, and he, you know, he was like, you know, he, he was a regular, my mom, um, was a big advocate. And I, uh, later on, of course, I became much more uh, involved in the alternative medicine world uh, because I really couldn't find answers in the traditional. And that's sort of how it all unfolded. Um, I got to work with uh, the late Bob Atkins um, and watched his progression as an, uh, you know, an alternative. Uh, at that time, we used to call it alternative medicine, not integrative medicine or functional medicine, which are common words that we use these days, but that's sort of how, you know, that, that early progression began. Just a little further background, teeny bit more, um, the kind of patients and conditions that you treat for, I know you're, you're an acupuncturist, right? As well. Yeah. Because so he found I, you, uh, the, I really have a very broad based practice. Um, I enjoy treating a, a lot of different conditions. Uh, I would say the things that people typically have the most problem with are chronic pain, chronic fatigue, um, chronic allergies, um, you know, little offshoots of those conditions like Epstein-Barr and Lyme disease. But, you know, everything morphs into something else. So people end up with cancer or heart disease, diabetes. And so once you treat someone holistically, they come in for something, but that's not what you end up really focusing on. So if people come in, I know they have a problem. It's why they want me to, to, to see them. But at the end of it, I have my own um, goalpost. And I, you know, when someone comes in, I know this is what they're manifesting. But then once you understand people are on kind of a train ride and it starts at birth and you can predict with a certain degree of certainty what kinds of problems they'll manifest. You know, once you understand their genetics, their predispositions, their lifestyle, their diet, um, their allergies, um, their uh, family history, once you understand it, you know pretty much where they're going. And if you if you are able to predict that, then you you know you're able to get them on the right track. Most people, you know, end up on a certain path. And so they you know, they'll start off, you know, with as a child, they, they're on a lot of antibiotics um, and they develop a lot of allergies and then their immune system's weakened and then they start having problems with hormones or chronic fatigue and Epstein-Barr. Uh, then they develop other underlying conditions. You know, it could be chronic sinusitis. And, you know, it just keeps, it keeps going. Like, you know, and so you can, you, you have to head it off at the pass. And so what I try to do is I tell people I'm, you know, very people are very familiar with the idea of you know staying in their lane. So, 
I'm, I really try to get people into their health lane. And once they stay within those parameters, um, I use different modalities. So acupuncture was sort of an outgrowth of uh, my practice after I was in practice for about 15 years. I worked in an office with an acupuncturist and uh, he was fantastic. You know, I, I would see people come in, they had terrible problems. And so uh, with acupuncture treatments, they were able to really upgrade their health and really change their health. And from that point, I went to, I studied medical acupuncture at UCLA, uh, and then I became a medical acupuncturist. And what acupuncture did, did teach me, you know, every, every piece of medicine teaches you something really critical. And acupuncture opened my eyes to the idea of energetics and that we are energy, that our bodies are made of energy, that we're created from energy, and that acupuncture taught, uh, taps into this very profound mechanism, uh, this idea of chi and blockages and how we overcome those. And so acupuncture really gave me great insights into how uh, nutraceuticals work, pharmaceuticals work, patients work, because once you understand the energetics of how we live and what weakens us, uh, you're able to build on that. And acupuncture is a very powerful Bridge. It's one of the tools, one of the tools, and one of the modalities that I uh, that I utilize. But it's a very powerful one. So, what about this thing? Hattie knows about it because we interviewed somebody on this, where they take a very um, detailed brain scan. Yes, and then they find disconnects. I, I'm saying it very no TN, yeah. you know, TNS, right? This ability to address a lot of the conditions you treat. Yeah, but beyond TN, I mean, even more advanced maybe than that? Yes, and I think where where we're going now is these kind of electromagnetic pulse therapies um, and the idea of combining um, these different modalities. But they are, in some way, uh, they do create maybe different pathways in acupuncture when you're using high-dose or high-impulse uh, energetics. But... Um, but it is a similar idea in that we're trying to rebalance. There's some imbalance in how you function, and we're trying to recreate or redirect those pathways. What are the on the medical side? You know, we're we're using a lot in my practice now. We're using uh, you know ketamine and uh, psychedelics uh, for the same reason is that you're creating new pathways and new energetic pathways to help the body and help the organism to reestablish itself and to get it back to what it's, what it's normal is, or to use it, you know, another pathway on it. One, one step backwards on this, uh, um, on this method about, um, reconnecting broken pathways because of trauma, uh, you know, that are producing because of trauma, producing depression, other things. Have you seen that work? Yes. I mean, I, I, I've seen, I, I have patients who are uh, with suicidal, um, ketamine is the only thing that saved them. Um, I have patients who microdose psilocybin. Uh, it's the thing that has worked better than any antidepressant they've been on. Okay. Wait a minute. I was really asking about that brain thing, but you're saying ketamine 
Tell us about ketamine. Take a few minutes. Well, you know, right now we're sort of in the informative stage. You know, this is a this is an anesthetic um, that was, um, you know, subject to some amount of abuse. And uh, what we did though find out over time is that ketamine is a drug that, uh, what I was mentioning earlier, potentially creates new pathways and. Why, when I say that, I mean that, you know, we know that 90% of our brain capacity is underutilized. So the secret is not necessarily to find treatments that enhance what we already have, which is a, when you think about drugs like uh, SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, those are drugs that increase the amount of serotonin, what we think of as the um, hormone, you know, a, a neurotransmitter that enhances um, good feelings, you know, to put it uh, in, in a common layman's terms. So what you're doing is you're increasing serotonin, but if you're really supplying something that the body may have, or it may be a neurotransmitter that is not the functional reason why someone is dealing with depression, uh, what you're trying to do is to create a new pathway. And it appears that neurons are stimulated, new neurons are stimulated, new pathways are stimulated when you use these psychotropic or psychedelics. And, you know, it, it, it starts with, you know, natural substances like psilocybin, obviously magic mushrooms. But it's one of the things that it's always fascinated me about the use of natural compounds that you can get so much benefit. Ketamine is a very powerful drug, but you can get so much benefit from using nutraceuticals, um, herbal remedies, things that we find in nature to get most of the people most of the way. You know, again, you have powerful drugs for powerful reasons and for important reasons, but there are also this, there's this other part of the converse, conversation where you're looking at diet, you're looking at supplements, and you're saying, okay, we're using these pharmaceuticals to create new pathways. How can we do that naturally as well? And that's that's the conversation we were talking about earlier while we were, we, we were discussing integrative health and how you combine right. both of these modalities into one practice. Richard, when you're, when, you're, when you're looking at your patients and trying to keep them in their lane, as you put it, and undo a lot of uh, injury that happened because of diet, nutrition, and so forth. Do you look at biological age and chronological age and use biomarkers and then use that to track progress against the goal? Yes. I, I think one of the things that happens in a, you know, again, in a medical practice versus in uh, when you're when you're using an idea, you know, about, you know, when we're thinking about what's someone's chronological age or the metabolic age. And, you know, I hear always hear people talking about they reverse their age, you know, 30 right. years and so forth. Right. I think, you know, there are mark specific markers for that, you know, um, true age, glycan age. Uh, look at different markers. Some of them are damage that occurs to the cells. Others are methylation uh, markers. But there's a lot of nuance to that also because there's a lot of ways that we predict age. And so I think it's interesting to understand your uh, biological age versus your chronological age. 
but it's also important to really look at all the factors that go into uh, making you who you are. So when you talk about traumas, when you talk about injuries, those may not show up uh, on a typical, let's say, methylation profile. You might see, oh, there's this marker, this epigenetic marker that tells me where, what kind of injury I'm causing on a day-to-day basis. But uh, you have to measure it against the actual changes that you are seeing on the test. So for instance, I will look at methylation markers, you know, and, and they're valuable. Uh, but I also want to make sure that I'm going through a very careful checklist in terms of the things that actually cause well, cause mortality that lead to aging and that ultimately are the mechanisms that are activated when uh, those causes of aging are, are, in, are either interrupted or uh, the causes of aging are, are accelerated. Right. And so you have to have a big, broader picture. Are there signals of all-cause mortality that you think are more important than other people think are important and that you think are underappreciated when you look at a patient holistically? Yes. And, and so I, I make sure when I do a, a, you know, a series of tests that I'm looking at things that I, I feel, uh, number one, when I'm looking at mortality and morbidity. So there's, there's a period in between um, what we think of as your um, you know, lifespan and your health span, right? So most people think about it. And they say, yeah, there's that period of time in between and, you know, but your lifespan is your lifespan. That's fine. And your health span usually, uh, you know, statistically is about 60, let's say 63 before people start having a lot of health problems. And then we have an, a lifespan, which generally goes to about 80, now, which we know has been becoming less over the last few years, but uh, which is a part of the conversation and why we're having it. You know, we're, we're, we understand the causes of aging, but we're having difficulty, you know, with implementing it. So the, the issue really is what's that period in between your health span and your, your lifespan? And how do we increase that? You know, how do we make sure that we've dealt with it? So yes, there are specific markers that tell you a lot about where someone's health is. And there are some simple things that um, I think are really underappreciated. C-reactive protein, for instance, is one, but HS or high... high Wait, so you have to explain what that is if you don't mind. Yeah. So um, CRP stands for C-reactive protein. And it's a biological marker. There's a high sensitivity CRP, which tells you circulating in the blood, sedimentation rate, was sort of an earlier version, but it tells you basically how fast inflammation is occurring at any time in your body. And so it's a, it's like a temperature, it's like a test you could do that tells you what your uh, sort of uh, inflammatory temperature is. I'm smiling, I'm just, I'm smiling faith because I'm Richard, because in our book, Dictionary of the Future, Faith knows what I'm going to say before I say it. In terms of this was written 22 years ago, like what will people be focusing on? C-reactive protein as an entry in the book. So and it's amazing how you know when I go back to and I've been using, you know, 
because I'm saying that something is underappreciated, it doesn't mean it hasn't been around for a long time. Right, right. Um, you know, when I wrote my uh, second book, which is The Nutraceutical Revolution, uh, which is now celebrating its 25th anniversary. Wow. Uh, I, Congratulations. Um, when I went through the book, because I'm going through the entire book now and um, and putting together another edition of the book, because the there are a lot of new nutraceuticals that are available. But when I went through the material in the book, it was both, I was both excited and it was a little bit sad, right? Because all the things that I felt would be um, available and understood and utilized, you know, 25 years ago, and you know, you write books 28 years ago, I, I just thought it would be common, you know, that everybody would understand that we'd all be, you know, looking for these things in foods, have everything that we needed, um, and it would be available. The research would be there. And of course, here we are, and I'm looking back, and it's it's kind of it blows your mind, right? I'm, now, yeah. you know, I see something, someone will say, oh, the, what, what do you think is a hot supplement on, you know, TikTok? And they're talking about quercetin, or they're talking about magnesium, or they're these are everything was in, you know, everything was in the book. It's, it's all there, the same and so really right now what I'm doing is updating that information. So it it's it's current, but but I'm updating the research, which basically says, yes, what we knew before was true. And we just have more data to support it, which is fantastic. And that's how science should be. But I think that that's sort of the idea behind things that I look at that I feel like I wrote in that book about MTHFR and C-reactive protein as well. I mean, these were tests that I was doing. What is MTHFR? Yeah, okay. So MTHFR is a specific gene that is involved in methionine metabolism. Uh, and methionine is a critical amino acid in terms of energy production and inflammation. If you lack, uh, it, we were talking earlier about methylation, so what the methionine pathway does is it, uh, is it methylates homocysteine. And homocysteine is an inflammatory compound that's been linked to uh, strokes and heart disease and cardiovascular disease. It is literally a, a, a factor in vitamin B12 deficiency and why it can cause a lot of problems. Um, it has a nickname also, which I won't say here, but... Uh, MTHFR is is one of those uh, genes that regulates inflammation and it is preventable. So if you take a methylated vitamin, so now we're talking about methylation again, but if you methylate, let's say B12, and you have a deficiency in uh, B vitamins and you can't metabolize them because you're unable to methylate, you can actually take a methylated B12, methylated folate, and that eliminates the problem for people that test themselves and look into whether or not they have this specific gene. Now, some people have one gene, some people have both. The real problem is for people that actually are what we call homozygous, which means they have uh, a, a methylated, uh, a, 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 a gene for MTHFR, both in the uh, mother and the father. So when they inherit it, they both with both genes are present, and that creates the highest risk profile for that. But it's a, it's another example of where we're going 
And when I talk about how all of this comes together, we're really looking at what your inflammatory markers are, what your genetic markers are, what your metabolic markers are, whether or not you have allergies, whether or not you have environmental um, exposures, whether there's other factors in your life, personal factors, whether or not you're sleeping well, whether or not you have, um, uh, whether you're getting enough exercise and so forth. So I really look at about, I look at about 21 different parameters uh, that give me uh, that overview, but methylation and problems and genetic markers such as MTHFR are one. I was just going to ask about what we were discussing earlier, which is what are you, what are you telling your patients about alcohol? I think at this point, um, you know, when I was in medical school, there was there was no the science at that point said there was no good amount of alcohol. It's a long time now, so we're forty years, you know, going going back forty years, but that was the state of the art then. There was some research that came out afterwards that seemed to suggest that moderate alcohol consumption was cardioprotective, and I think a lot of a lot of times when you hear good news around something where there's, you know, a commodity such as, you know, alcoholic beverages uh, that people like to consume, it's nice to have a feel-good feeling or feel-good story around it. Um, the, there is a significant difference between how alcohol is metabolized for men and women. Um, alcohol significantly raises estrogen levels um, because... It, it works as an anesthetic, so it actually anesthetizes the liver. It stops a detoxification pathway. You get a buildup of specific toxins, and that's more significant for women because they're going to raise their estrogen, and that creates more of a, a problem in terms of risk factors for cancer, for instance. Um, I think where we are now is, as with everything, you know, another buzzword these days is precision-based medicine, we have to really take all these factors into account. And so when I say I look at all these factors for each individual, I really am trying to understand what that person's genetic predispositions are. You know, someone has a high risk of cancer, uh, their estrogen levels trend high, uh, and they're consuming a lot of alcohol, it's, it is going to add to their risk factors. It's likely that one drink or less than one drink, and it takes about an hour for your liver to metabolize one ounce of alcohol. So it's likely that that one ounce of alcohol consumed slowly over that hour is probably a fairly low risk and may reduce the risk of heart disease in people that are prone uh, to problems with their heart that are related to stress, right? So if it reduces your stress, you feel better with it, you have a drink, it probably reduces your risk. I think beyond that, the problem with alcohol is just that it reduces your ability to detoxify. Um, it increases permeability in your gut. Wait, what do you mean permeability in your gut? So we have, there's, a, there's another kind of buzzword that's out there uh, called leaky gut. And basically leaky gut and increased intestinal permeability are the same basic. When we say it, what we're saying is that in the gut, there are cells, columnar cells, uh, and there are um, cells that there are uh, 
junctions in between the cells called tight junctions. Those tight junctions are where after food is metabolized, your body absorbs uh, nutrients uh, into the portal vein and then it gets delivered to the liver and you know whatever viruses, bacteria, uh, toxins that were absorbed are processed and then the raw materials are then uh, released into the body. What happens with leaky gut or increasing intestinal permeability is the tight junctions don't function as well. The single cell barrier, and it really is just one cell between your gut and your bloodstream, that cell, be that, that uh, barrier becomes disrupted. So if you consume alcohol, it damages the barrier. Gluten um, also can damage the barrier, particularly for people that are sensitive to gluten who have antibodies um, that increase the risk of celiac disease or gluten sensitivity. And so when you absorb those compounds, when you absorb toxins, when you absorb food that you shouldn't, you increase the risk of allergies, you increase the risk of, um, of, you know, of toxins, of, of you know, being exposed to bacteria and viruses. So alcohol damages that lining. And because it damages the lining, it increases permeability. So now you're getting things into your bloodstream that you wouldn't normally if you drink too much. And that's the gastritis that people feel, you know, when you get a hangover, there are certain things that people feel. They, they tend to feel nauseous. They, you know, they get headaches. Um, they get fatigued, you know, and, and but part of the GI side effect is because of the local toxicity of alcohol. So this thing about the gut is the new brain. I mean, yes. Um, can you talk a few about that? Yes. So your gut basically actually contains the uh, cells that are very similar to the cells you find in your in your brain. There is a direct communication between the vagal nerve and your brain. Seventy um, percent of the serotonin we talked earlier about serotonin and um, and depression. Uh, and it's the feel-good hormone, 70% of the serotonin you produce is produced by bacteria in your gut. So we're learning that trillions of bacteria in our gut, you know, at this point, there are more cells in your gut than cells in your body. It might be 10 or 20 times the number of bacteria uh, on a cellular basis uh, that are present in your gut than are present in your entire body. Those cells basically don't know that they're in your body. They think you are around them. Uh, and, you know, they eat first. You know, we chew the food. They digest the food. And uh, they break it down uh, with enzymes. We absorb what they don't consume. Uh, they release a lot of chemicals and a lot of nutrients that we can't produce. Like B12, for instance, is produced by bacteria. Either that or we have to consume uh, red meat because that's how cows actually produce B12 is because they their gut turns what they're consuming you know that let's say the uh, grasses that they're consuming and the bacteria in their gut consume are able to turn some of those nutrients into B12 we consume red meat and that's how we get B12 or we get it through our own processes of uh, bacterial uh, digestion the problem is is that if there's a if the gut biome is off and these trillions of bacteria aren't working together, 
we take too many antibiotics. I mean, there are some antibiotics, you know, the, the what we call the broad spec, spectrum antibiotics that can take up to, you know, one or two years to replace those gut bacteria. So we talk about the gut biome, you know, we're, we're using, you know, these very powerful tools to eradicate infections in our body. But in our gut, those bacteria, which in number of, you know, over a thousand different strains can actually become quite depleted. And we use those bacteria for nutrients. We use it for neurotransmitter production. Uh, we use it to prevent cancer. We use it to prevent heart disease. There's a very symbiotic relationship that's developed over millions of years between the bacteria that we have inside us that, that are passed along in many cases, you know, generation to generation, um, that were highly protect protected. And when we lose that, we lose our natural barrier against disease. We lose the natural way that our body prevents um, uh, problems with malabsorption and maldigestion. And then we end, end up increasing the risk of a lot of diseases because we don't have this, um, this source of natural protection. And it's why probiotics are, you know, such a buzzword too, because they do provide an enormous benefit, but they need to be taken in the context of how many bacteria that we're actually trying to replace when we, when we lose. You're not saying that we have to eat red meat to keep healthy in our gut, are you? No, no. And in fact, um, there's another type of organism that uh, lives in our gut, which processes red meat and turns it into a toxin. So in fact, there are definitely reasons not to eat red meat. What I am saying, though, is that the reason why cows contain, uh, and when we, when we consume them, you know, why we get the benefits of what they eat, uh, part of it is that their gut bacteria converts what they eat in, in, partially into this very critical nutrient. And one of the only ways to get it is through red meat. A lot of people, what happens is there are people who, let's say, consume um, red meat all their lives and then they become vegetarian. The natural process, meaning the bacteria that they uh, that they've uh, that they're that they've unleashed, that they're harnessing, uh, those bacteria are related to the foods you're consuming. So if you consume something and you don't need it, then you don't produce it yourself. And so a lot of people make the transition from being a carnivore to a vegetarian. And then at that point, they don't get the, they're not able to actually, they don't have the bacteria to break it down or produce okay, it. Okay, so it, if you don't eat red meat, just talking about myself, you know, uh, what, how, what, what, what do you recommend then? Well, number one, you know, get a simple blood test and check to see because you might have adapted at this point. Many people do. What am I? What am I checking for? Uh, you, you do a B twelve level, so just check B twelve okay. and folate. Um, and that'll yeah, mine was fine. And that'll and if those numbers are normal, then you're good. Okay, because I don't want I don't want you to be promoting 
you're not really promoting eating red meat because do you think that's healthy for us, the kind of red meat we get? No, I mean, I think that it's more important to um, for people to understand how we function and how disrupted our food supply is and how our how 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 poorly our diets have conformed to you know what we consume and what we need so yeah. when i say b12 i'm saying there are some people just you know from a medical point of view because again people come into me and my job is to optimize their health uh, i course. might have some other motivations that I feel are important, you know, uh, protecting the planet and, you know, uh, reducing our consumption of red meat is a, is a critical goal. But at the same time, there are just some people who can't, they, they just can't get it. So I first try with supplements and you can get perfectly fine B12 supplements for people who are deficient and it works great. But it's important also to understand that if you are a vegetarian, and I have I see these things all the time. I have you know people that eat red meat and don't eat vegetables, and it it's it drives me crazy because you know everybody knows the truth at this point, right? It's like it's very hard. So I'm asking you, uh, uh, it drives you crazy, but you just say why? And I know a lot of people they eat red meat, no vegetables, no plants. So tell me why it drives you crazy. Well, you know, without the, the things that nourish, for instance, we're talking about the gut biome, the things that nourish your gut biome, for the most part, are things that healthy bacteria will grow on. So we know there are prebiotics, and when we say a prebiotic, prebiotic could be fiber, you know, soluble and soluble fibers. Um, and each one of them has a very specific bacteria that they, um, that they attract. And when you eat red meat, you obviously are consuming, you know, all the toxins from the meat. You're uh, you're not creating diversity in your gut. You are uh, consuming a product that, you know, for many other reasons, but is not. It's not a great. Uh, it's not a great diet for environmental reasons. But on the medical side, it just. You know, it'll contribute to heart disease, contributes to cancer, you know, creates a poor bed biome, increases your risk of most diseases. And it does not really do much than make people feel good at the time they're eating it. So you mentioned Bob Atkins before. So so that was an interesting time. Um, the thing that I took away from Bob, Bob Atkins and what I immediately changed when, because I, I didn't like uh, the diet and I didn't like the the part of the diet which focused um you know on red meat and bacon and and you know butter, butter. And, and, and cheese, and, cheese right. and you know but what I did see while I spent time with him was that people were losing weight because they right. were on a restricted carb restricted diet and when you're battling you know, when you're battling two sides, it really was two sides of the same one because you had, you know, the meat industry and you have the, you know, the the carb industry, and they were both promoting things that were terrible, right? So you you took people off sugar, and they suddenly lost weight, 
and it was it was a major revelation. I mean, you know, at the time he was yes. called before Congress. He was, you know, lost his license, uh, really for saying that carbs were the problem. He had his own biases, uh, and when I saw that, I was like, "Huh, there is a middle ground here. We we really could eat a healthy diet that doesn't have sugar and doesn't have red meat." <laughs> And that's, you know, that's the focus, been the focus of my practice really the last 40 years. He's probably a necessary step in the journey to enlightenment. He, he was. I, well, I, he was he, he was a necessary step because he, he was that step for me where I was, you know, at the time, when there weren't a lot of people doing integrated medicine in New York. And he was a necessary step for me because I realized it's like, okay, this this is the carb diet everyone's talking about. This is the meat diet. It doesn't make sense. We need a healthy diet, and so that that did make a big difference. So you don't believe in um, pure keto, the no no carb diet. Um, I am not a fan of um, of a diet that doesn't promote what I think is is the specific health lane for my patients. So. It may be that there is a case where I come across a patient and the only way, the only thing that I can do is put them on a diet, which is, you know, let's say fish and, you know, uh, salad, you know, or something that is protein and, yeah. you know, and where they're having minimal carbs. Um, they lose weight. And, and part of it is because... You know, they're having they're a healthy salad. diet. Yeah, they're having a salad and, yeah. and I'm getting them, you know, to eat something that I feel comfortable with. So it, it in that sense, they are on a low carb they're on a low carb diet. I'm just on a it's on a high nutritional value diet. You know, omega threes, yeah, high quality protein and you know, and and salads and, and you know. I have a question. I always let Addie have the last question, so don't worry, Addie. No. So yeah. here's my question. So we've been looking for a magic pill for centuries about losing weight, right? And guess what? Ozempic, Majorno, Wagovi comes along. And I'd love to know what you think about that. Uh, uh, generally, for obesity, for people that just want to lose 20, etc. So, you know, I was using uh, Ozempic off-label for a, for a while um, before it uh, came on the market as a obesity drug. And I saw the benefits. I also saw the downside. And so I think it's a great tool in the toolbox. And I think- Wait, what was the downside? So the downside is um, people developed problems over time so they will get um you know if you're not careful and then these are things that have come out in the news um increased risk of gallbladder or pancreatitis gallbladder disease pancreatitis uh digestive disorders reflux um i think those would be sort of three things that are fairly well documented at this point and understood so the problem is with a lot of treatments, and particularly where I see big companies uh, who really got on the bandwagon, is they don't really understand, you know, how how to use the drug, 
most effectively because you have to be on a good diet before you go on the drug. A lot of people just stick with what they're doing, you know, and they are, well, this is fantastic. I've lost my appetite. I don't need to eat anymore. And then the minute they go off it, they're going to have a problem. You have to train yourself once before you go on to be healthy, you know, and then once you're on it, you have to have an exit strategy. I often talk to my patients. I said, it's, it's easy to go into something. It's very hard to get off of it. And most drugs are like, that. you know, most drugs people take and they say, you know, the question people ask, them, am I going to have to be on this the rest of my life? And yes, if you're not careful, um, you will be. And I don't think the benefits uh, over time, you know, we've been down this diet drug route many times. This one looks a little bit better, but I would say, you know, there should be an expiration date where you take it if you're using it for weight loss, uh, where you have a strategy in place, you have an e exit strategy, you know what your diet looks like, you know how to exercise, you, you worked on your sleep, you know the things, you're reducing stress. Those are the things that cause weight gain. And so you want to make sure that you're using a powerful and expensive drug. It's, a, it's an amazing conversation we're having, right? It's a drug that's $1,000 a right. month. Right. And we're having this incredible conversation over something that is an exorbitantly priced medication for losing pounds that you probably can lose a good chunk of it with, you know, the proper diet and all the factors that I mentioned. Yeah, so for sure. It's a big advance. I think, you know, one of the things I do want to mention, because I know you're a futurist, I think we're living in an incredible time. Right now, if I were to say from from my own perspective, it's the most exciting time to be practicing medicine and to be alive to receive those benefits. We really are at the cusp of changes that I've been waiting my whole career uh, to see. And I do think that the advances we'll be making will make the kinds of treatments kinds of things we've done over the last 50 years pale by comparison. So I appreciate the question because I do think it's it, the drug is on the right path. Um, I do think, though, that we don't want to throw out the baby, in this case, with the bathwater because, you know, at the end of the day, there's just certain things you have to do to stay healthy. And it's a mistake to go on a medication and think that that's somehow going to be a drug you can take exactly. for the next 40 years and it's going to be well, even Even if you can, it doesn't really, if you're going to eat it, I know people that eat against it. Yes, kind of. yes. They take it and they eat against it. It doesn't work. No, no, no. It's a, so it's a, it's, it is a, I, again, I, I, when I see, you know, people prescribing it and without the oversight, because, you know, people buy it online and so forth, I look at it and I'm yeah. like, it's a trigger. It's a disaster. You know, and I think right. that that's we've we've been down this road so many times before that it's hard to believe that somehow we're walking into this one thinking, "Yep, we figured this one out." Magic. Field. We got it. We always okay, do. Addy. Yeah. So I was just to build on that for the last question because you did mention a thousand dollars a month, and some of it sometimes is covered, sometimes it isn't, and we are at the cusp, I believe, of a huge revolution. But will that revolution be available? to enough people. I mean, you've seen the healthcare divide that was illuminated by COVID. So how concerned are you that the gap between the haves and the have-nots in terms of medical access 
is something that we're not prepared to address as a society. I, I think it's a significant problem. Um, I think the you know the therapeutics will certainly be more get more expensive because when we're talking about biologics, they're very sophisticated uh, therapeutics. However, because of the demand and over time, you know, when you do have people who can afford these drugs, like you know, it's like plasma TVs. I mean. You know, right. just forty thousand right. uh, dollars. Now you you know you basically can get one for three hundred. I think this medication at some point it will be off patent. It will be available for next to nothing. But I also think that a lot of the drug companies will seek to create um, better and better versions that will be more accessible to the masses. So I but they also I do tweak think the, the patents though too, right? They- they play with the patents to extend the patentability with a slight modification. I do think well, that to the that's chemistry. cynical. I, I do think they do. Yeah, I do think that it's it it, it is a it is a problem. But I also um, do recommend to my patients before they come in because obviously it's not everyone's tip of everyone's tongue. And I say, do these things. I listen. As I said, I saw people lose lots of weight on restricted diets it is a little bit harder but you know your body does get used to it and i do think you know we haven't had time to really go into each one of these topics is is really fascinating on their own because you know intermittent fasting um you know ketogenic diets like what's the best way for people to modify their diet so they get benefit you know after a few days of fasting you you lose the taste for a lot of sweets and sugar and you know you will you will yeah. tend to lose weight and if you do yeah take the time you don't need these medications or if you need them you need them for a tuna and i think that's you know i think that's the best advice i can give there are certain there's certainly other supplements that are less expensive there's diets that are better there are ways to find out about inflammation we talked about c-reactive protein uh, you know people are literally overweight because they have a lot of inflammation. And suddenly, you know, someone goes on a diet and it's a healthy diet, they lose weight, and they're like, wow, I just lost 10 pounds. Well, a lot of it was just inflammation um, that they were carrying. And they're just so surprised about that. Uh, The other downside with Ozempic, and I just did want to mention it, is it does appear that, you know, once you go on a diet, this is true for yo-yo dieting, where people go on and off diets. Every time you go on a diet, you don't just lose fat. You know, there's this idea, you know, someone will show you like, here's what five pounds of fat looks like, right? I remember yeah, right. there was a doctor I knew who had that on his desk. You know, it's like, if you lose that weight, this is what you're losing. But that's not how dieting works. You lose, you know, 60% fat, fat or 70% fat, but 30% of it is muscle. And so you have to be vigilant about exercising while you're on these medications because it appears that when you're on them, you lose more muscle and you lose more fat. So instead of it being, let's say, a 70-30 split for argument, say, where you lose 70% fat, 30% muscle, you lose, let's say, 50-50 on these medications. And I think that's troubling because we know that the key to longevity, and we've talked about this quite a bit, the keys to longevity, one of them, is whether or not you can maintain your muscle mass, sarcopenia. 
And, yeah. you know, here we are having a conversation about risk factors, reducing the risk of heart disease and diabetes or and weight as an independent risk factor is significant. But if you're losing muscle, you're creating a, an entirely new risk factor um, that you didn't have before. And, uh, and that's another caveat I would let people know about in addition to the risks. But Richard, I know I, I, I know I know that you would agree that the insurance companies, I mean, that obesity is definitely a killer, let's say. Right. Especially at three hundred and four hundred, even two eighty, two fifty. Right. You know. And they're not covering even Ozenbic or Manjuna or Regolvi or whatever. Why? Why? Well, I mean it's it is just too expensive. And I think that insurance companies you know, it, it's interesting because this, again, is a philosophical problem. But when you think about insurance, you know, if you have a car accident, the insurance company isn't paying you. And they'll pay you a little bit to be a good driver. But what they right. what you're paying for is what if your car hits a tree and then they need to fix the car. So they're in the business of taking care of problems after there's an accident. And right. traditional medical care... And insurance, the idea of insurance is against a problem. Like, you know, you're being insured against a tornado or a hurricane. You're not being insured, you know, if you keep your against house. A pre, it's not a pre-tornado. Yes. You're, you're, no right? one's saying, wow, you did what a great job you did painting your house. They're saying, you know, well, if your house gets blown away, we'll rebuild your house. So insurance companies have a little bit of an incentive not to keep people healthy because the problem for the most part is in people's hands, right? They're not healthy because they go out and they have a bag of potato chips when they shouldn't, or they don't exercise, or they don't get enough sleep, and they're not taking the time to understand the role that stress plays. So there's a lot of problems with insurance companies, and I'm not saying right. they're not saints. What I'm saying is that, you know, this is a very expensive drug that a lot of which of which a lot could be prevented, you know, meaning you could people could do a lot to prevent themselves from putting on a certain amount of weight, not all of it, but some of it. But to your point about people eating against it, so I think the insurance companies will look at the actuarial pieces and say, will this provoke, will, will the drug create what they call a moral hazard, which is if you know you're protected against it. You'll eat more, and at the end of the day, you won't. They won't benefit from reduced claims because people. Addie, will do you really eat. think that they're thinking that? Oh yeah, they do. They have thousands of people sitting there just figuring out the math here. Is that why you think that they don't cover it? I don't think they have enough data. I, I think they look at the data, and they don't have enough data to say what is the N, how many people are going to be on this drug for how long, what are the reduced claims? Now, life insurance is different, but health insurance. They they're just going to look at the data and say, will it reduce the claim burden on my on my actuarial tables? And they don't know yet. So they know that if it reduces obesity, it would reduce the claims. No, but law but long term though, to your point, will people lose the weight, keep it off? What other side effects may emerge? Look, if the insurance company knew, if they knew that yeah. they could spend twelve thousand dollars a year and save a hundred thousand dollars a year. In reduced claims, they would do it. They didn't have the it's data. It's a very yet. important point, Adam. I, I think you know if you if you think about um, the potential risk of side effects. Let's say we don't know. 
and you have this great drug, and it is, as I'm saying, increases the risk for pancreatitis, you know, gastritis, um, you know, gallbladder disease. If it does do that, and now they end up having to pay for the problems that arise from people taking the drugs, you know, it, it, it is it is an issue that I don't think they're preventing. And also, obesity is a contributing factor, but, you know, so is pollution, you know, to all-cause morbidity, mortality. There's just no, there's no way that insurance company of you know, smoking, it does change the way they think about it, but it's not enough for them to say, we're going to get in, involved in the in, in every preventive tool or technique that's available. Is obesity, but, but is, it a, is it a disease? That's the, that's the problem, is it's, it's not, there is morbid obesity, but being overweight is not necessarily, and particularly since, let's say they look at the population and they say, oh, 75% of the population now is technically obese. So are we insuring against obesity which is now a normal part of life you know like everyone is technically overweight and so are we you know is our job to take care of every problem that arises i i don't know what the answer is i you know i i guess for me though i still feel like people are you know there's a certain amount of personal responsibility that i think we should expect i do feel like if people are able to, then they should be held to a certain standard where before going on medications like this, they've gone through a complete trial. They've given it a good go. It didn't work. And, you know, and now we can help them lose, you know, the extra five or 10. But I, I think that there's the good news about it is that I do feel like there will be cheaper drugs. I really do. I think that, no, I you think know, so I think too. they'll figure yeah. that out. And I will mention one other one other small detail, and this is not to encourage people to be overweight, but over the age of 70, uh, there is a slight advantage to having a few extra bounds uh, in terms of, again, all-cause mortality, right? People with a little extra weight tend to survive crises uh, that they may be confronted with a little bit better. Not obese, but, you know, a few extra yeah. pounds. Like how so? But explain. Why does it work? I, I mean, my, well, so let's say you're five pounds overweight. Seven pounds overweight. Well, let's say you're 25 pounds overweight. Well, I think that's overweight. I mean, I think when you're, okay. when you're dealing with 25 pounds that you can't get rid of and you've got a gut and, you know, your blood, your HbA1c is elevated, which is a big marker that we use. Uh, for determining glycosylation, which is how much glucose is attached to your red blood cells, that checks it over, let's say, three months. If we see that you're pre-diabetic, you you are obese, you have a heart disease risk in your family, or we've got a CT scan, we find that you have coronary uh, calcium score is elevated. We just know that you are you've got all the reasons. Every every duck is you know being lined up against you. You have to start removing those those risk factors. And again, I have patients where, you know, they've been on these medications, their blood sugars have dropped, their cholesterol has dropped, their blood pressure has dropped because they've lost the weight. 
you know, I mean, it's doing some incredible things and they're happier. Um, another risk factor from Ozempic that just came out, uh, this was last week, was that there seemed to be an increased risk of suicidal thoughts. Now, I have not seen that. I have seen a lot of happy. I'd like to see I've that. I've seen a lot of happy patients, uh, but they're saying <laughs> that it has increased uh, some of those thoughts. And it may be because if you are, you know, this the, the drug is centrally acting. It works in your brain as well as uh, increases metabolic function, but it works inside the, you know, the, the food addiction centers. So it may be that it's it's having some action that heightens somebody's awareness that the reasons that they're overeating is because they're depressed and perhaps ozempic increases that perception right we we've seen that with other medications uh that sometimes we think are doing a good thing but it actually makes people more aware that there are problems so i think it's because a lot of people that are vastly overweight or overweight think that if I was only thin, everything would be okay. Right. And right. then they get thin and they realize they're crazy. Right. So, right. I think that that's a very, very That astute. depends where the, where, where does the suicidal ideation fit in the journey of weight loss? You know, and, and I think that it's another flashing yellow light in this yeah. uh, love affair that we're having with pharmaceuticals and uh where i've spent you know my entire career uh looking for natural ways for people to get to the same point right without uh taking uh without taking a drug or at least if they're taking the drug optimizing their health because at the end of the day we, we are really in the game of optimization right and if i can optimize a patient you know and Adam, we've talked about, you know, I do believe that, you know, sort of the natural lifespan and runs to about 120. I do believe we'll get technology behind us that will push that forward. Um, I don't think we're there at the moment, but I do think that we do have a natural ability to extend our uh, health span, what I like to call our sage span, because it's the time, our wisdom years between, you know, where we're where our health span and our lifespan is, and we're supposed to be using those intelligently. It does take it does take a bit of work, but I do think that optimization, if we use pharmaceuticals, if we use supplements, if we use all the technology we have, um, that's that's got to be the future of you know where we are, and that's really the focus of my practice at this point is, you know, how do we optimize health? How do we increase uh, health span and lifespan, um, and how do we make sure that people stay healthy and vigorous and vital, you know, well into their 90s, hundreds? Um, I think it's entirely reasonable. I think it's possible. I think we're seeing it, and um, and I think for the people who want to take that journey, there are a lot of tools in the toolbox, testing tools and treatment. So, Richard, everybody's every. Everybody's going to want to know where to contact you. So where should they look? Um, they can look at First Shine Center. You know, go on the you know website. Uh, can you spell it yeah, for them? Yeah, so uh, F-I-R-S-H-E-I-N center.com. 
and uh, that's the best place to look up uh, practice and you know say hello. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's absolutely you were a pleasure, fantastic. and uh, my I'm pleasure. Really pleasure. thrilled to uh, finally meet you. By the way, I know oh. you've been a really uh, inspiring figure uh, yeah. for you know you. we're you know for most of my life. So I really enjoy the uh, be having this opportunity and thank Adam for oh. for doing all he does. I've really become just enamored with his work and uh, and and oh, his depth brilliant. of knowledge and experience is really something that he humbly, um, you know, keeps to himself. But if the word is getting out, I'm just letting you know. Thank you so much. <laughs> I think and, so. I think I've known thank him you. for like one yeah. We know each other for many, <laughs> I know, many yes, spans. I know and, you too <laughs> have, and I'm happy to be just, uh, invited into, uh, into the group. Well, we're going to, so, we're, we're going to get together soon. I think you're fantastic. I, and I hope Everybody, you can have a line around the block, which I'm sure you well, have already. I'm, but... I'm looking forward to talking more, and I really appreciate your yeah. questions. And really very insightful, and probably uh, the best uh, the best conversation I've had. Um, oh, so well, I, I really loved the uh, loved the back and forth. I just thought he was fabulous, and the reason for that, he was the. He was fabulous because he scanned so many, what do you call it, methodologies, practices. Yeah, so many, so, yeah, so many so dimensions. So many, many. And I, I mean, I think he's a little conservative, but I kind of like that, you know, like you could actually go on a diet and not take Ozempic, but like, you know, very, very reasonable and warm and no attitude and... Um, no, and I'm a great just, educator. He likes to yes. he likes to bring people along. And look, I I don't disagree with him. I don't think you do either. That not at people all. People can't outsource their personal responsibility no. to the government or to an insurance company. Right, right. And I finally understand now why insurance companies don't want to cover it. I think it's just horrific. But whatever. You know, he was very. Uh, you know. He was, well, I'll say he was just lovely. It was yeah, a real, he was a lovely person. I, I knew you. I knew you'd enjoy him, and I. Think, I just um, loved we him. Should, we should definitely have him back. Yes, we should, and we should definitely run over there and get our things tested. Get your C-reactive everything yeah, tested. I want everything tested now. <laughs> Before Faith and I go, I just want to remind you to subscribe to Jolty, follow us, listen on your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends, make your enemies like you better, and get Jolty out into the world. We thank you. Yeah, beam us up, babies. Ciao. Beam us up, keep us up. <laughs>